sporting endeavor and a commercial incentive are not necessarily mutually exclusive. There are more Asians involved in football than you would expect. There are nowhere near as many Asians involved in football as there should be. Join us on the Our Game 2 podcast as we celebrate the ones that are and discuss the ones that aren't. Okay, now I'd like to introduce to the show Sanjeev. Hello, Sanjeev. Hello, Boo. Nice to be here. Thank you very much for coming along. Sanjeev, um, Sanjeev Aurora, is that correct? That is correct, indeed. Okay, so first, if I may ask, do you mind just letting us know what is your ethnic background? Yeah, sure. So uh, I am a, a British Indian, let's say. Uh, family are from Punjab originally. Uh, came over in the 70s. I was born and brought up uh, in London. Uh, yeah, and that's, that's my background. Fair enough. And in terms of football, what team do you support? I am a Liverpool fan and I'm buzzing at the moment for a number of reasons, but particularly because of the signing of Thiago. Okay. Uh, all right. Fair enough. So, you know what? Let's just get it over and done with. Congratulations on winning whatever you've won over the last few years. And let's just not mention it again for the rest of the show. <laughs> well, the COVID league with the uh, asterisks next to it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That one. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, Sanjeev, I know, I know a little bit about your background and I know what a fascinating journey it's been. Would you mind sharing it with for Kevil and the rest of our listeners? Yeah, sure. So, um, so I'm a lawyer uh, and I've worked in, uh, in sports for just over 10 years now, uh, predominantly at FIFA. It was quite a journey to get to, get to, to, to FIFA. I mean, the first thing, obviously, is having a massive passion for, for sport, but particularly for football. So the, there was always the desire or the kind of dream to work in, in football in some capacity. Coming from a British-Asian background, uh, obviously, uh, I had to choose one of the three professional uh, paths. Uh, and I'm terrible with money, can't stand blood. So the legal path uh, was obviously the, the, the natural choice for me. I studied as a lawyer uh, at university, did a sports law elective at university as well, which was the first time I actually realised uh, you could actually work in sports as a lawyer. I found it very interesting. And then followed that, followed that journey, started off at ITV, followed that journey. And then after doing a postgrad diploma in sports law, uh, yeah, ended up in FIFA at, in 2009. In a, in a very broad commercial legal role, covering broadcast, sponsorship, licensing, you name it. Uh, and then eventually, after, after a few years, was, was the head of legal for, for media and communications. So responsible for all of the broadcast, uh, the global distribution of broadcast rights uh, for FIFA events for, for X number of tournaments, 2014 all the way through to 2013. Uh, for, as you can imagine, for uh, a football mad football fan, uh, a dream kind of destination to end up and just had, yeah, just had a wonderful time uh, during that period. Uh, I'm now uh, operating as a legal consultant for a number of different clients uh, within the sports sector. Uh, and it's been a very interesting and, and varied uh, career to date. Why did you leave FIFA? Okay, so this uh, is a straight in with a very interesting angle <laughs> right from the off. So my time at FIFA coincided with probably the most notorious period in FIFA's recent history. So you're talking about in 2010, the announcement for the host countries for 2018 and 2022 through presidential elections. And then obviously then the, the FBI raids uh, and, the, and the Swiss investigation, which is going on right now. So 
particularly for a lawyer, being involved in a lot of these different activities and kind of understanding a bit of the background uh, to a lot of them. So probably in, in, in the public ether, you would know about 10% about, of the actual uh, events or circumstances that went on uh, during that period. It got to a point with all of that after about five years where I thought, you know, enough is enough. It was a, it was a dream to, to, to land at FIFA and it was my dream job. But in some ways, you know how they say you should never meet your heroes. Uh, in some ways, the reality uh, doesn't, well, in fact, the reality never um, uh, meets the fantasy. Uh, and I think from a moral and ethical point of view, I think I've reached my limit. Uh, and so after the World Cup in Brazil in 2014, which, by the way, was a fantastic experience. And, you know, if you're a football fan, if, you're, if, you, if you want to work at one event, it's a World Cup tournament in Brazil. I mean, Brazil is a fantastic country, amazing people, uh, and just a great tournament. I think after, after that, because of the darker side of FIFA, let's say, uh, I think I've kind of said, look, I, I've, I've done what I need to do here uh, and I need to move on to do something else. So I think that's a, it's a very succinct way of putting, or of answering that question. There's a lot of more detail to that, obviously. Uh, but I think that, that's a good way of summarising. I think I'd, I think I'd reached my ethical saturation point. <laughs> okay, so where were you based, by the way? In Zurich. In Zurich, okay. uh, in beautiful, beautiful. First of all, Switzerland is a beautiful country, uh, and Zurich is a is a beautiful town. A bit soulless, to be honest. I mean, there's not much going on, uh, so I, I definitely recommend it for extended weekends. Uh, but to live there can be quite difficult. Is not the right word. I think, yeah, quite vanilla. That's all it's And did family go with you, or were they staying over and you were flying backwards and forwards? No, no. So I was married. I'm still married. And um, my wife uh, came over with me and then my kids were born in Switzerland. And uh, yeah, and then we, we, we went as two and returned as four. Okay. Be, being within FIFA during that period, as you said, no, I mean, lot, to be honest, we, I, I'm assuming that you can't really talk about the corruption side of things. And I think from an outside perspective, I don't think any of that seemed a surprise to us. What was a surprise was the the locations of the, as you mentioned, the 2018 and 22 World Cups. What were your thoughts on that at the time? Did you agree with the decision making? Were you privy to more info than everyone else got to see? Yeah, it's I I, I, I didn't agree uh, with the eventual uh, winners of that. I thought England's bid was was incredible, uh, and not just. Because I'm, I'm from England, uh, I really thought in terms of the overall picture, in terms of infrastructure and what they're offering, I think it was a, it was a fantastic bid. Uh, yeah, I mean, if, to say how, how close I was, I mean, first of all, physically, I was in the hall at the time. I was actually behind the scenes uh, when, the, when the announcement was made uh, and uh, was involved in the whole kind of preparation side towards it, towards uh, the actual event itself in terms of the, uh, um, the selection process. Look, the reality is, it wasn't a transparent process. There was an element of um, greed behind the decision making. Uh, it's a it's a system which which has changed, but at the time uh, was very much focused on what is best for certain individuals, as opposed to what is best for one that the nation's hosting the tournament, but also obviously football in general. Uh, so it was very, very difficult. I think it was probably the first time 
because it's still quite early in my time there. So it was, it was 2010 and I joined in 2009. It's probably the first time I really, really got to touch and, and witness the darker side, as I said. You know, let me try and paint a picture of what, what life was like at FIFA. Even though it is FIFA and it's a, it's a very grand environment and you're obviously uh, working in, 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 in football, which, uh, which as I said, was, was something I aspired to. But you're still doing an ordinary day, day job, okay? Uh, and you still have the responsibilities that come with that. So uh, being a lawyer, my, responsi- my, my, my responsibilities were to ensure the best legal structure for the commercial deals that I was working on. Uh, to ensure that um, also, in a sense, FIFA was getting the best deals with with the intention of whatever revenue was generated for FIFA was going back into the objectives of FIFA, which is the uh, the development of the game and hosting great events. So uh, for, for the 400 staff, let's say, that were in Zurich, you know, our day-to-day was, was relatively mundane. It was only during these kind of uh, situations like these host announcements or at the events themselves or presidential elections where you saw the the darker side, where you saw the actual how the system worked in order to um, serve and protect certain individuals. And whether that be those who are remaining in power or those who are simply, you know, looking to skim off the top uh, in terms of uh, briberies. Now, for FIFA staff, it's a very difficult situation to be in because a lot of the, a lot of people who worked at FIFA, ordinary people like myself, who maybe also came from different countries, had families, uh, you know, who were based in Switzerland, maybe children who went to school there. You're doing your day-to-day job as best as you can. You know there is a darker element to it, but one one part is as long as you're not directly involved in facilitating the darker side, you can almost turn a blind eye to it because the reality is if you rock the boat you're out. And that has a consequence, not only in terms of you losing potentially your dream job, but also the impact it has on your family, the impact on trying to find new work in maybe your, your original country or a, new, or a new country. You know, there's a lot that goes around it. So I'm constantly asked the question, you know, during this really, really difficult period, were the FIFA staff members also partially to blame? for what was going on, even though they weren't necessarily the ones with the hands in the till? And it's a very difficult question to answer. I would say, uh, as, a, as a general point, no, because as I said, they're, they're not involved in criminal activity themselves. But there is a there is an element of complicity in terms of turning a blind eye. Now, my personal story is that when it came to my ethical saturation points, uh, I decided I didn't want to get involved. And I basically, or I wasn't happy with, with the situation. I had a massive conflicts going inside me. And so I basically uh, ended up giving a, 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 a witness statement. I, I provided evidence uh, as part of the Swiss investigation. Now, it puts both myself and my superiors in a difficult situation because uh, I'm, a, let's say, adhering to the law. I'm um, com- complying with the requirements of the Swiss investigation. I haven't done anything illegal in terms of, you know, to, to terminate my contracts of employment or anything like that. But essentially, I'm giving evidence against my bosses. So <laughs> this is a very, very difficult situation for about a six month, probably actually about a year period, uh, where there was this kind of no man's land. Or what do you do? And then eventually, I decided myself, well, look, enough's enough. I'll just leave. Uh, and I'll return to London with my family uh, and join another company. But, you know, I would say for the first five years of my time at FIFA, it was an incredible experience. Dream, you know, dreams coming true, so many stories to tell, so many anecdotes. 
Uh, in fact, so many anecdotes, which when I first returned, I used to tell my friends uh, back here, they were really enthused by. Now they're, they're bored as hell and they're having to shut up. So I'm glad we have another audience. I can tell some, some anecdotes too as well. But for the last couple of years, it was very difficult. Uh, and I think, you know, I think it's difficult for a lot of people uh, at Peter at the time. Obviously, I, I left in 2016, so I don't know what the situation is like now directly. I can't imagine because of the fact that many structures are still in place that it's a huge difference, even though they claim it's FIFA 2.0, the same neck of the woods, if you see what I mean. They're still, still part of the, the, this, the sports industry, which, is, which has its fundamental issues. Uh, but it's not my problem anymore, to be honest. So, yeah, I think, I think that's a, one way of summing up uh, life at FIFA. Thank you very much for your honesty in answering that. So in terms of what, you, what you've done since or what you're doing now, we'll move on to the AFM bit in a little bit. But you said, what did you say, sports consultancy? Yeah, so I'm basically an independent uh, lawyer uh, and provide uh, advice to a number of different clients, mainly in the sports broadcast sector. Uh, and um, uh, yeah, it, it works well uh, in terms of being independent from an organization, but then uh, having enough enough work to keep me to keep me tiny over and being able to take all more clients uh, if necessary. It pays the bills. Uh, it means I have um, you know good work life balance in terms of looking after the, the kids as well. So uh, yeah, it's working well. Fantastic. Okay, so I know briefly we've talked privately about AFM. Can you explain or expand on that for for our listeners, please? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think so. So this is. AFM is what I call my passion project, okay? And it's something that's been in my uh, thinking uh, for, I'd say, close to 20 years. And it stems from this conversation, which uh, I've had with many stakeholders. I'm sure both of you have had with many, many stakeholders. uh, And it's about the lack of uh, British Asian footballers uh, at the highest levels of uh, professional football in this country. Now, the reason why I say 20 years uh, is because, uh, I mean, just one, one particular anecdote, uh, I remember a university uh, watching, um, uh, I think it was on Football Focus or something like that, some, a vignette about uh, some clubs uh, interacting with their local community, uh, trying to unearth talent from, let's say, the British Asian pool. Uh, and it was, it was clubs like, well, close to your heart, Apu, West Ham, uh, but also Bradford and Leeds and Leicester. And back in, back in those days when I was at university and, uh, you know, this is before internet and email and various other things, I, uh, I was cold calling around these clubs uh, and basically saying, look, um, is there anything I can do to help? You know, I, I'm really, really keen to get involved in something which promotes young British Asian footballers. Uh, you know, even if it means putting the cones out in training or, you know, uh, or, you know logistics or whatever it may be, uh, let me know and I'll, and I'll help out. And across the board, the, um, the response was, you know, you, you're doing a law degree, son? You know, stick to the law, uh, i.e. thanks but no thanks, which, which really summed up for me the fact that uh, a lot of the different uh, activations with clubs were, were almost, maybe it's a little bit harsh, but almost gimmicky. It was almost like they wanted to do something almost as a kind of fan engagement uh, as opposed to actually trying to unearth uh, talent uh, within their local community. And certainly 20 years ago, 20, 30 years ago, some of the, um, the issues uh, that have blocked the path of young British Asian footballers were probably more prominent. So, 
you know, things like um, le- levels of interest within the community, levels of support in the community, uh, potentially physicality and mentality, though you know, I think it's all arguable. But particularly, I think the, the myths around that were, were much, much higher, much more prevalent uh, 20, 30 years ago. But I haven't seen too much of um, uh, incremental difference from the conversations that have been going on uh, 20 years ago as opposed to today. I mean, I, there was an article recently, uh, I think it was in The Guardian, where again, it just talked about the problems as to why it's not happening. And in the last 20, 20 years, no one has really offered a concrete solution. Uh, and I find that very frustrating. I find that very, very frustrating. And so my, my idea, my, my uh, mission, uh, is almost to try and enact a kind of paradigm shift in that conversation and talk about the concrete solutions rather than just the problems all the time. Okay. So when I left, I was working for a company called Being Sports after FIFA. I left in the summer of 2018. What I did is I spent about uh, eight months, a year, going up and down the country and speaking to various different stakeholders. Uh, be they be those people in the in the British Asian community, be they at uh, you know the FA, uh, be they at uh, clubs. Uh, so conversations with City Group, for example, uh, Luton Town, uh, met numerous different uh, people to try and identify a kind of um, a working plan uh, uh, to, to crystallise this pathway for young young footballers. And the result of that is is AFM. So AFM. Um, is essentially a three-pronged process. The first one is to scout, to find the players. So the idea is to do trial days uh, in the southeast of England, uh, the Midlands, and the northwest to, to identify the top, let's say, 20, 25 um, players with the most potential in the age group of 7 to 14. Uh, and there's a lot of different elements as to how that scouting system would work. And I've had consultations with, with, with former scouts and directors of football at universities and these kind of things to, to ascertain the best way to do that. The second element is a, is a mentoring program. Okay, so it's, it's quite a loose title mentoring program, but essentially it covers a lot of the bases which potentially are missing uh, at the moment. And, and what I mean by that is things like um, providing logistical support. So, you know, these young players can get to clubs and academies, uh, legal support, financial support, educational support uh, to, uh, you know, to, as, as a backup in case things go wrong, medical insurance uh, and various other elements that are needed around almost as a kind of a support service for a young player who's potentially looking uh, to, to progress in the game. On top of that is a, I would say, a marketing slash education element to it. So the marketing side is promoting these young players to clubs and academies so there's awareness about them but also a, an education element to bust those myths uh, that we talked about I talked about earlier and that's for the clubs for academies but also for amongst the community as well uh, British Asian community as well uh, and then the final uh, aspect is uh, representation of these players uh, when they become a professional but just going back to the second core element the mentoring essentially the, the, the principle is to provide what I believe is the missing ingredient in this piece, which is the belief system. The belief, first of all, from the British Asian community, that the young Asian footballers 
can make the grade. There is a pathway to progression to the highest league, uh, highest um, levels of the game. But also with the clubs and the academies to say, well, look, you know, there, believe that there is there are talented young players amongst your community uh, on your doorstep uh, who can make the grade, and essentially, you know, build that bridge uh, through 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 you know uh, the existential element of belief. Um, the idea, obviously, this this program it. it um, requires resource and for the yeah since I say majority of 2019 up until the pandemic uh, a lot of my time was spent uh, procuring kind of sponsorship and investments uh, around the program uh, unfortunately the pandemic pretty much put a put a halt to it but the, prior to that the conversations were quite progressive and what this program does is it ticks a lot of boxes for companies in terms of their marketing side of things so things like inclusion diversity uh targeting the british asian community targeting potentially the the south asian community in in, in asia itself right such a billion people market there it is a lot of boxes there where it fell down was from the return investment perspective because if you're investing in this program today if you're solely looking at from a as i said a return investment for for percentage of the of the, of the program or or as a shareholding perspective then your return investment isn't until the players start earning money themselves which which could be 10 years later the idea is post pandemic when we get to you know some form of normality uh is to is to start up these these conversations again get something concrete on the table uh, and hopefully uh commence the trial dates in the summer of uh 2021 kevil did you go through the chelsea system when they had their thing kevil yes yeah uh... For for those that don't know, because I'll be honest, I know very little about this. Can you just expand on on what Chelsea do or have done in the past? Yeah, um, I was, obviously was only at Chelsea for six months, but when I left there, I still had friends at the club who were obviously players within the academy system. It might have changed now, so um, don't quote me on this. But from from my knowledge, what Chelsea do is they take the kids in at pre academy, obviously just before the age of nine. So that could be anywhere between five years of age and, and nine years of age. This and is about, Asians. Oh, I'm not sure what they do with Asians, but I'm just speaking in okay. general terms of what Sanjeev said about the talent pathways and picking up young players early on. What they do is they they pick up players from that age, and at the age of thirteen or fourteen, they actually end up putting the boys into um, like boarding houses, and they nurture them through that system, and they get their education or a very limited education and then they either go on to become professionals or they don't in terms of the talent pathway Chelsea and other big clubs are picking up kids really really young and identifying the best players at that age yeah which is a good point because I think uh, unfortunately uh, the the young players in our uh, in our community are not getting picked up because uh, as you will know uh, from your experiences within clubs most clubs from a resource point of view are actually quite dysfunctional. Uh, I think it's 95% of their uh, expenditure is on player transfers and player salaries and agent fees as well. So you've got 5% left on administration, including scouting. So particularly in this country, what tends to happen is uh, the scouts go to uh, the same um, talent pools that they've always done. Now, as you will know as well, British Asians tend to play uh, predominantly in British Asian leagues segregated leagues uh, where, where it's, it's probably harder to, um, you know, 
get attention and awareness about your your thing. Now th- things are changing, right? We're living we're living in a digital world, okay. And to get that to get that to make noise about young good young players, uh, we have the platforms now. So uh, just as an example, there's a there's an app called Tonsa, which I don't know if you ever come across, which is essentially a, the LinkedIn for for football players. And it's it's a Danish company. Uh, they recently got some uh, big investment of funding to, to roll out in the UK as well. And essentially what it does is, it, as I said, it's like LinkedIn. You, you, you put your profile up, you put your skills, your attributes, your video clips about yourself. And there are, there are scouts who, who go onto this app. But also you can whack this your profile straight into clubs recruitment inbox as well. So there's there's other things you can do to overcome some of the obstacles that have been before. I think perhaps you when you talk about Chelsea, were you referring to the Chelsea All Stars thing, the Chelsea yes. Asian All Stars? Yes. Right? So this this was again this is this is something that's been on for about 10, 12 years, and it's it's an event they they host one, one day in the year where they have a, a trial for young British Asian footballers. Uh, and I think in the in the last 10, 12 years, I think maybe one or two of all those young boys who've, who've attended. Uh, had made the grade and certainly not Premier League level. I think the highest mm. is Jan Dunder, who's who's now at Swansea. And again, it's a for me. It goes back to my point about a little bit gimmicky. You know what Chelsea Asian stars. I think it was on Sky Sports for a while as well. You know, you're kind of thinking, well, what is this all about? What what what, is, what are you tangibly trying to get out of this? Is it just fan engagement, or are you genuinely trying to look for young players? Because if if you're genuinely looking for young players, then you you'll be doing more than you know one trial day a year in London, meaning that, you know, some some quality player in Birmingham uh, has no chance uh, of attending, uh, you know, the, the event and, and, and being a success. So for me, again, it comes back down to maybe lack of resource, but also lack of awareness of the fact this that... Is, this players- is what we were saying. Sorry, Sanjay, this is what exactly what we were saying a few weeks ago um, when, we, when we first did one of the podcasts. We were saying about how there's such a financial incentive as well because of the exposure that Asians have in the in the world. I mean, if you think about, you know, India, Pakistan um, and all of those other uh, South Asian communities, Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, if there was to be a pure Asian player that made it through to uh, the Premier League or the championship and had a sustainable and long career, you can imagine the, the crazy financial rewards that clubs would get from TV rights, sponsorship deals, yeah. Um, I had a I had a friend that was at Chelsea, and um, he ended up winning a Sony award, and he had all sorts of people coming after uh, coming after him to try and get sponsorship and stuff. And he was only 10, 11 years old, so you can imagine the the gains that clubs have to make and the incentive they have to actually bring an Asian through. But like you like you alluded to, there's there's a lack of understanding of where these players can be picked up from. It's not just in London. There's great players in Birmingham. There's great players in Bradford. There's great players all up and down the UK of um, British Asian ethnicity. I think you also need you, you need a strategy to get those because as you mentioned, Sanjeev, lots of football clubs, 95% of expenditures on the first team, the rest of it's dysfunctional. No, I, the, the point before, I mean, the conversation I have with City Group, for example, uh, we talked about, this is just before they acquired the franchise in Mumbai. Now, uh, we can understand, you know, what, why they're doing this franchise program. It's not solely related to, uh, you know, identifying players. It's also to do with um, the brand uh, in different parts of the world, but also I think there's also tax issues as well. But that's that's by the way. But the conversation <laughs> I was having with uh, Citigroup was to say, well, look, if you're if you're looking to create uh, awareness uh, in in South Asia and potentially identify a player from that market who will sell shirts and merchandising for you in that part of the world, I can guarantee you the potential customer 
is not going to care if that person was born in Mumbai or Macclesfield. True. As long as they look like them, right? Yeah. Yeah. So aren't you better off, instead of investing X number of millions in this franchise in Mumbai, trying to unearth this player, actually looking in your own doorstep? Because I can guarantee you, in the northwest of England, there are some incredible young British Asian players who could probably make it to the Manchester City first team uh, within a few years' time. And that's not even a joke. You know, I mean, that's, that's, uh, this is one of the anecdotes I'll tell you from, from FIFA days. Uh, you know, and, and I'm sure everyone has these kind of almost Hollywood stories. Anyone who, anyone who tells me or is listening to this and says, actually, it's a bit of a myth about, young, uh, about British Asian footballers. Actually, they're, they're, they're crap. If, if, they, if they were going to make the grade, they would have done it by now. Utter nonsense. Utter, utter nonsense, okay? So I've been very fortunate during my time at FIFA to share a football pitch with players who, and I'm not going to mention their names because I don't want to embarrass them from what I'm going to go on to say. But <laughs> players who have played in World Cup finals, players who played in Champions League finals, players who played in Premier League, players who played in Serie A, Bundesliga, etc. And to this day, to this day, still I have never shared a football pitch with a better player than a British Asian lad who I used to play with in my early 20s called Simran, who just was, you know, above the level of anyone else, right? And, you know, and as I say, in the Hollywood moment, I mean, there were, there were many occasions where he was applauded at the end of the game by the opposition, which is so rare when you, when you think about in the, the way we play football in England. Yeah. But it's, it, you know, they, they do exist. They, they do, do exist. Anyone who believes that, you know, or thinks in their mind that there are not good footballers out there is, it, it, you know, it's so frustrating to hear it. Uh, and, it, and, it, and it comes back to, you know, the, the point we spoke about Appy, the other day about what happened with your son, with the scouts who were saying, oh, no, you know, he, Asian players, they're, you know, at some point they're going to want to go into professions, et cetera, et cetera. You know, how, how wonderful would it be if we had the, the counter arguments to these, uh, to, these, to these stereotypes, to these myths uh, to hand, right? I mean, I, I, you know, I come from a legal background. My legal training is to build counter-arguments to other people's arguments. You know, if the argument is X, I want to go with Y, Z, A, B, C, D, all of them, you know? And that's, and that's part of this program as well, is to, as I said, going back to my original point, is, change, is, is, is a paradigm shift in the conversation and not talk about the problems, not talk about the stereotypes, not talk about that one, the one word which crops up a lot of the times in this conversation, which we haven't touched on yet, is racism. You know, to, to move away from all of that and actually have the very positive arguments about why these young players should be given the chance uh, at the clubs and the academies. Sorry, I was just going to say, I couldn't agree more on that. I mean, we're, we're so, and we said this um, a few weeks ago as well about how we're built up as Asians with the mentality that, you know, in certain aspects of sport, we are oppressed or we are, you know, limited. And that might be the case uh, on a, on a number of different spectrums in terms of um, stereotyping, profiling, etc. But to 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 not attack, but to to go about this issue by focusing on the positives, I think is the best way moving forwards to get more Asians into the elite end of the game because we're taking a a positive approach in that we're going to be working with the current system that's already in place to get our people through to reap those rewards that you've spoken about. What I was going to say was you're talking about our counter arguments. The best counter argument would be 
a player. If someone was there in the Premier League week in, week out, that was a star. I mean, we've got Neil Taylor, we've got Hamza Chowdhury, we've had a few others in the past. But they haven't been stars, no disrespect to them as yet. Okay, so what's next for the AFM project? What are you looking to do next and what help can either, well, either us or what help can our listeners give to you? Yeah, so as I said, the, the idea is once you go back to some form of normality, uh, is to restart the program and start trials uh, in the summer of 2021. Uh, it does. It does need financing. There's no. There's no denying that. Uh, I think in the first instance, uh, I think it, for me, it's incumbent on either any company that wants to be part of this space or the British Asian community itself. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm I'm a legal person. I'm not. A, I'm not a, a finance-minded person, right? So, a lot of my conversations that I've had out there uh, in terms of trying to procure investment. Uh, there have been a lot of great ideas, but I don't know how it really, I'll be uh, entirely honest, I don't actually really understand how things like crowdfunding works or how things like tax breaks for individuals and various other things work. So, you know, if anyone wants to get in contact and explain all these things in a very nice way or take over these uh, <laughs> activities for me, I'll be very, very happy and appreciate that. But the, the idea obviously is, is, to start, is to start this program again uh, and, to, and to get some real real progress in this. I think the timing is right for a number of reasons. One, uh, because I said awareness around you know, groups in society that maybe have been neglected for a long time, you know, uh, are, uh, are coming more to the fore, more prominent. I think because of, because of the fact of Brexit, uh, which isn't my political uh, uh, um, inclination, but it, it has happened and we have to deal with it. Uh, the reality is that it's going to be harder for professional clubs in this country to procure young talent from the EU. So they'll have to naturally look within their own uh, national borders, so within the UK. And and because, you know, we're, 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 you know, we're third, fourth, potentially fifth generation of immigrants who are so embedded in the football culture uh, of this country that naturally there are going to be better players coming through who have the physicality, who have the mentality, who have the support from their families uh, and their community. So I think it's, it's the right time to put this all together, particularly given that there are so many good different activations in around the country, but it, it almost needs a nationwide uh, program, which is what I hope this to be. It, it, it's kind of bringing it all together. And it's not something that, puts, honestly, I can probably do by myself, right? I need support. I need help. And, I, and I'm, I'm open to it. And I, and I want people to be actively involved in this. So, whether you're, uh, as I said, whether you're a finance person, whether you're a coach, whether you're a scout, whether you're someone who's involved in your local community, you know, get in touch, get involved, and let's let's make this a community project rather than just an individual project for myself. And that's 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 my hope. That's my uh, intention. Fantastic. Can I just ask a question? Whilst you were at FIFA, did did this did this subject ever come up? Did they ever? I mean, did the people in Switzerland realise that? Britain has such a huge Asian population which isn't represented in football? Well, not really the British, but uh, India was considered the final frontier. That's what it was called for the popularity of, of football uh, on a global basis. Now, obviously, you're competing with a religion, uh, which is cricket. <laughs> Sorry, also competing with religion, but competing with religion that is cricket. And it's, it's a losing battle. And this is also part of the issue of clubs going to India trying to, you know, um, solicit players from India. The reality is, it's actually still a very small percentage of uh, people who are, who are actively participating in football versus uh, cricket. So 
it was always considered the, the, the final frontier. What, what, I, what I learned at FIFA, uh, and, and uh, not just in relation to what was going on uh, in, in India, but also in other de- developing parts of the world, is uh, with some cultures, sporting endeavour and a commercial incentive are not necessarily mutually exclusive. And what I mean by that is where there may have been uh, an understanding that sports is purely kind of like a hobby or an amateur endeavour, Actually, if you look at it from a business perspective, you're much more likely to, to uh, progress. Now, that's not just in relation to the players themselves, but the entire infrastructure around the sport. So whether it be building stadia, building uh, training grounds, facilities, uh, training up coaches, uh, scouts, agents, whatever it may be. If you build a whole enterprise around that, you're much more likely to unearth talent rather than just if you may very luckily uh, find find a very very good player, and that's some of the principles I'm trying to potentially apply around AFM as well. To say, look, let's build a commercial incentive for all the different stakeholders in here to be actively involved. So now, whether you're a sponsor, okay, so you can you can um, uh, uh, basically take advantage of the the, the goodwill association with that with of such a program. Whether you be an investor who could potentially get return on investments, whether you be a player, obviously who could potentially make the grade whether it be the family and the community who get the support and the uh, and also have you know one of their own as a, as a player who develops everyone benefits not only from a from a talent perspective but also potentially from a commercial perspective and that's some of the principles i learned at fifa which i'm trying to apply uh, at afm as well i just wanted to to ask Andrew about his experiences um, at fifa as a as a british asian i mean i don't know what the the demographic situation is at, at fifa in terms of different races working within the organization but i just wondered what your experiences were like were they positive were they negative did you face any discrimination there or it's an excellent question it's a very very good question and actually you know what i'm gonna do i'm gonna tell you an anecdote first before i can't can't give you the details so this is one of the one of the anecdotes that i really enjoyed and and i've now bore my friends with for every world cup the uh, fifa invites its partners so sponsors and broadcasters to you know bring guests uh, to the FIFA World Cup event. Right? So I was working on the Brazil World Cup, uh, absolutely fantastic World Cup, as I said. Uh, and I remember one day being in the director of TV's office where he got the list from all the different broadcasters of the, of the guests that they wanted to uh, invite to the World Cup. Uh, we're going through the list, and I can't remember whether it was, it was either Sony or Star, who were the licensee for, for India. Their guests were Butchanay, Butchane, <laughs> Butchane. So Amitabh Bachchan, Abhishek Bachchan, and Ashwara Rai. My Bachchan. word. And no one in FIFA, so obviously the director of TV, he was Swedish, uh, no one else at FIFA, except myself, knew the hell, who the hell. <laughs> <laughs> okay. They're three massive names right in our right? culture. Like, massive names. Even I know who they are. Okay, so, uh, I mean, Amitabh Bachchan was my hero growing up. I mean, he was, you know, he was, he's an absolute, absolute legend. So uh, basically, because because of that, and because I was going to be in Brazil for a couple of months, they said, oh, look, okay, well, look, when the Butchins come over, do you mind looking after them? Oh, my. So I was like, sure, why not? So uh, I ended up basically watching both semifinals, uh, including the uh, Germany 7, Brazil 1, with Amitabh Butchin and Abhishek Butchin. Uh, unfortunately, Ashra Rai didn't come in the end, but definitely with those two, and the other semifinal. And then watching the third, fourth, uh, playoff uh, on a large screen on Copacabana Beach uh, with the Butchins, which is incredible uh, experience. I also introduced them to uh, Blatter, and uh, 
before I introduced, uh, when I was explaining to Blatter who he was, I said, okay, so basically in Indian culture, you've got Gandhi right at the top. You've got uh, Amitabh Bachchan just slightly below. <laughs> yeah. Then drop about a mile and there's everyone else. <laughs> <laughs> So that was my, uh, that was my, so that, in some ways that, that was one of my anecdotes, but also answers what they understood about the Asian culture uh, within FIFA, right? Completely oblivious uh, to how things were in India. So um, in terms of dealing with, as I said, you know, uh, India was seen as the final frontier. So they wanted to uh, conquer it from, from a football perspective, but didn't really understand the culture. From a British Asian perspective, not at all. I mean, I, I, I was, obviously I was, the highest ranked British Asian because I was the only British Asian, but also um, I think there was one other Indian guy obviously worked in IT. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah. and, my, and my previous boss actually coincidentally was British Asian. So he left and then I took over his, his role, but it, it wasn't, wasn't really known in terms of, you know, racial issues, none at all. You know, the thing is, Europe, working in Europe is very, very different to working in England. There is, there's so little either direct or indirect, well, I mean, racism, to be, to be quite blunt, or uh, really kind of systematic uh, issues which, which hold a certain group down. Or if they are, if they do exist, they're probably quite Europe-specific, which I wasn't even aware of, because, you know, maybe Germans are, Europe, are racist towards Italians or French are racist towards Spanish. I don't know. But certainly as a British agent, I never, I never found uh, any of that at all uh, working at FIFA. It's very much an international environment. And yeah, it was great for that. Fantastic, Sanjeev. Okay, one last question just to wrap up. We came across each other on Twitter when we had a disagreement over what the British Asian community should be doing with regards to Asians in football. Would you like to just say what you, what you would like for the community to be doing that would make life easier for all of us? Yeah, uh, I think it's... I would certainly, I mean, that's where we first introduced each other. And, and Twitter is really bad for trying to get your points across in a, in a manner which you hope is interpreted, <laughs> uh, as you know. Um, but, you know, look, for me, the, the way I, I see this entire situation is to say, yes, there are endemic fundamental structural issues with uh, the way clubs and academies recruit players, which is detrimental to young British Asian footballers, right? That's, that's clear as, as day, right? We have, we have, there's no argument around that. My, my philosophy is to say, yes, there has to be education to, towards clubs and academies to understand, to, to, to bust those myths, as I was saying. But if us as a community, we're going to wait for them to make the change, we're going to be waiting a long, long time. Okay, and I'll use a comparative example in terms of, you know, back in the day when we had, you know, British Asian professionals trying to make it in the accountancy world or the legal world, right? Those same structural issues existed in accountancy firms, legal firms, et cetera, et cetera. But we, 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 we busted that ceiling. We made it, right? And now in that world, you have British Asians right at the top. My point is to apply those same principles to, to football. And the way to do that is to come together as a community, okay? And we have the tools within our community, whether it be professional skills, whether it be obviously the young players, whether it be resources, but also many British Asians who are working and operating within football, who have bespoke football skills, specific skills, or have a football network. So bringing that all together, we can then give the uh, the boost that young British Asian players 
need, which maybe our generation obviously didn't have. Okay, so that our children and our uh, grandchildren, perhaps, will, will never even even need to know about the problems that you know are constantly repeated uh, over the last twenty years before. So, what they can do is they can we can uh, ideally through AFM uh, come together and first of all start talking about solutions rather than uh, the problems all the time. Start to really think about concrete ways to crystallise that pathway in terms of. Uh, finding the players, giving them as much support as possible, getting in contact with clubs and academies to make sure that they they, um, they become aware about these players, uh, and then and, and just keep the whole noise about it. But change change the conversation to solutions rather than problems. That's really I feel an important thing that the British Asian community can do, uh, and I think it will make a big big difference. Sanjeev, thank you very much. Thank you, pleasure.